You know, this room is filled with believers. I know that, but honestly, there are people uh, who believe everywhere of different things, from the fact that there's Sasquatch and Bigfoot out there to the belief that uh, I believe in first, uh, you know, uh, falling in love at first sight. I believe honesty is the best policy. I believe, you know, the Broncos are going to make the playoffs. I, I, that was a loud laugh right there. Um, we believe a lot of things. We believe Elvis was the greatest musician ever and that maybe he's still alive. Um, I read this week that, there, that an increasing number of people believe in UFOs and alien life forms, extraterrestrials. In fact, what's, what's surprising is while that is increasing, the belief in God is decreasing, which is really ironic. Um, beliefs become religious when they start to influence the way we live, when they become some kind of a spiritual thing where we connect with something beyond this earthly life. A lot of beliefs we just believe in and they go on, uh, but there are some beliefs that really impact our lives in a huge way. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people who say they believe in God and it really doesn't make much difference in their lives. Gallup has done surveys for decades on faith in God, and in the 1950s and 60s, 98% of Americans said they believed in God. 98%. That's just about everybody. And from the 1960s until about uh, 2011, we saw that drop about a percentage point every decade. But then in the last um, 11 years, it's dropped 11 points, a point a year. We're down to 81% of Americans believe in God. And, uh, and it's, it's even less among the younger generation, which is actually the group that believes most in UFOs and extraterrestrial life. One author in, a, in an online magazine called Vox said this is a religious thing, that this has become actually a religion for some people to believe that there's hope out there in some extraterrestrial life coming to earth and, and bringing salvation, which is ironic because because we believe someone came from another place to this earth to bring salvation already, and his name is Jesus Christ. But the fact is that our beliefs need to impact our lives, need to give evidence in some way. And James, in the first chapter of his books, a passage we skipped over, actually points it out when he says this, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but, dece- but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. In other words, here's what real religion is. God's not anti-religion, but God wants religion to be something we talk about and something we actually live. And it ought to affect what comes out of our mouth. It ought to affect how we interact with people in need. It ought to impact the way we interact with the world and all the temptations that come from the world. True religion goes beyond beliefs to behaviors. It's hard to convince someone that you're a believer if you don't act like it. In fact, I'll ask you this question. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would the people closest to you say, oh, there's no doubt that person's a Christian because of this, this, and this? Or would they say, yeah, they talk about it, but it doesn't really look like it? And that's James Hull's point in his book, his letter that he wrote that's in the New Testament. There were people who said that they were followers of Jesus, but James says, the way you guys are living doesn't look like it. When you face trials, all you do is complain. When you read the Bible, you don't do what it says. You don't listen to anybody. You just talk, talk, talk. You treat people unequally in your church. You favor the rich and you, and you uh, discredit the poor. He says, your faith ought to impact the way you live. And so we're going to talk about faith today and what it really is like 
to be a person of faith. And if I could just summarize it in one sentence, it would be this. The faith that saves is a faith that moves. It is not a faith that's just intellectual. It's not a faith that we just talk about. It's a faith that actually moves you to do something. It is active. It is ongoing. It is constant. It's always stirring within you. That's the kind of faith God wants us to have. And some of you who say you believe don't have that kind of faith. It's only that kind of faith that will save you. So let's open up to James chapter 2. And we're going to talk about faith today and what biblical faith really looks like. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save them? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, faith minus works is lifeless. No life in it. It's like looking at an automobile, and it may look pretty on the outside, but there's no engine to move it, no, no engine driving it. Faith ought to drive us to action. It ought to move us to do something for God. That's the kind of faith that saves. Genuine faith will always give evidence in works. Works are part of faith. Now, there's been a debate in the church for centuries over this whole relationship of faith and works. In fact, about 500 years ago, there was a movement called the Reformation. And here's how the Reformation got started. At that time, there's basically one church, the Roman Catholic Church, all over Europe and in that area of, of the world. And it was uh, very controlling. In, in fact, people didn't have Bibles. You had to hear it from the priest. And you had to go to church and do the rituals to have assurance that you're going to heaven. And they would affirm you whether you were in good standing with God or not. And along that time, they created something called indulgences, which was a certificate, in a sense, that, was, that, that, that you would buy, you'd pay money, you'd get the certificate that would absolve you of past sins. So if you had a really bad past to say, how do I really know I'm forgiven? Well, yeah, give us $500, we'll give you a document that, that verifies you're forgiven. Well, that sounds like a pretty good deal. And so people would write checks. I don't know if they wrote checks back then, but they'd pay the money. They also were told that if, if they were fearful of what would happen after they die, because the belief was you'd go into purgatory, which was not a ski resort by any means. It was a place in between heaven and hell. You go to purgatory, and the certificate would be like your card. You could wave like, hey, hey, I get out of purgatory. Get out of purgatory free, because I bought this certificate back on Groupon back when the Pope did this. And that's what people would do. They'd buy these certificates. And do and you know how the, how the um, great St. Peter's Basilica got built? Largely funded in the, in the early stages by these indulgences, by misleading people that they could buy forgiveness. So there's a Catholic priest named Martin Luther who rose up and said, this is wrong. This is so wrong. This is not what Scripture says. And, and others began to gravitate around him, listen to his teachings, and they had this, this thought that, you know what, we got to get to back to just simple Christianity, and there's five things that we need to focus on. One, we need to look to Scripture alone. We need to talk about salvation by grace alone, that our response is faith alone, that's all, it's, it's about Christ alone, and that it's for the glory of God alone. They call these solas, the, the five alone things. But Martin Luther actually had a problem with this thing of faith alone because he said, James says it's faith and works, and it's got to be faith alone. It's not faith and works. 
And so he had a hard time actually accepting James as an authentic book in the Bible. Yet it's right here. James is saying it. And we need to understand the context of, of the whole New Testament, what they're talking about. See, what James and other writers are saying is good works do not earn favor with God. You do not earn favor by doing good works. We go back to Romans 4. Here's what Paul says. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but is due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. How? Not because of certificate, not because of an indulgence, but because of the Lord. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So there's basically two ways you can try to approach God. The first way is the way of works. And here's how that way works. You, you do good things, and then, like a wage, you get paid for it. So if you do a job and you work 40 hours, you can actually demand a paycheck because you earned it. It is your right. And many people approach God that way. God, I've gone to church my whole life. God, I gave thousands and thousands of dollars to your church. God, I prayed for people. I've served. I've sacrificed for you. You certainly owe it to me. And that's works. Now, here's the problem. Many of us grow up thinking that somehow by being good, we can earn our way into heaven. And here's the way I thought when I was younger, that it was sort of like the scale, that on the, on the one hand are all the bad things I do, and then on the other side of the scale are the good things. And if I can just get the good things to outweigh the bad things, I'll pass. That's the way I thought. What I didn't realize is my bad things were worse than I thought. That rebellion against God is a high crime. And that every time I sin, it's like a cinder block getting put on the scale. So I, so I uh, dishonor God, boom, brick drops. I, I use foul language, there's another brick. I envy someone, there's another brick. I lust after someone, there's another brick. I'm greedy and selfish, there's another brick. And these bricks are piling up. And so over here, I'm saying, how can I tip the scales? Well, I go to church. Well, here's the other thing I didn't realize. The good things I do aren't as good as I thought they were. See, in the book of Isaiah, it says, my righteous deeds, they're like filthy rags. So here I am over here, brick, brick, brick on this side. I go to church. There's one dirty rag. I help someone. I'm really nice to someone. There's another dirty rag. I, I, I worship God and I pray there's a couple more dirty rags. How many dirty rags is it going to take on this side to tip the scale? An infinite number. Because my sins are so heavy. See, nobody can ever do enough good to counteract the bad we've done. And even if we think we can, we're way off in our estimation of how good our good is and how bad our bad is. The only person that was good enough was Jesus. And he earned salvation for the rest of us because he was perfect. He was obedient to God. He offered his life as a sacrifice. Therefore, he can give it as a gift. That's the other way. Really the only way, to be honest, is to receive the gift that God gives you can't earn it. Nobody can go to God and say, you owe it to me because I've done something. He goes, no, no, no. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. That's grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve because of the generous heart of the giver. Now, how does works relate to it? Does that mean, whew, got the gift. I don't have to do anything for the Lord. No, no, no. I don't do it to earn. I do it as a response of gratitude. The good things I do for the Lord, it's not because I'm doing it to be part of his family. 
I'm doing it because I am part of his family. And that's what Paul gets to in the other part of Romans when he follows up and says, is this blessing then, this gift of grace, only for the circumcised? You guys know what that is. We're not going to talk about that in detail. Or also for the uncircumcised. For we can say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Was it after he had done the good thing or before? Paul says it was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. In other words, Abraham was right with God before he ever obeyed God in that act. But he obeyed God in that act because he was received by God. You see, works isn't how we earn favor with God. Good works express our faith in God. It's not to impress him. It's to express our faith. James says just natural. It's the natural outgrowth of faith that you'd want to work. You know, when you see a fire, fire produces smoke. And you've heard that phrase, where there's smoke, there's what? There's fire. So... So you see that smoke up in the air, and, and here in Colorado, you look up on the mountains, you see smoke, immediately you say, there's a fire somewhere. Why? Smoke is evidence of the fire. Smoke, smoke is, is, is nothing by itself. It's produced by fire. That's the point here. Works are produced by faith. When you see the works that, that honor God, that bless God, you say, that person must be a person of faith. Look, at, look where that's coming from. It's just flowing out of them. Jesus gave another illustration. He says, like a tree that produces fruit. When you plant that seed and the tree grows, there's no fruit right away. There may not be fruit for a few years, but over time, you know, if that tree's healthy, if it's growing, it's going to produce fruit. Same thing with the Christian. Jesus said, you know who a believer is, who a disciple is? Look at their fruit. Because it gives evidence of their faith. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, by grace you have been saved. It's God's gift through faith. That's our response to God's gift. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Salvation is God's gift to us. You didn't create it. You didn't develop it. You didn't earn it. It's God's gift. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. Nobody can brag and say, I'm better than you. I'm in heaven because I lived a more holier life. I knew more of the Bible than you did. I served harder than you did. No, no, no. We all get in the same way. I received the, the gift that I, that I didn't deserve. I can't brag about that. All praise goes to who? Him. For we are, he says, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. There it is. We aren't saved by good works, but we're created in Christ for good works. Salvation comes by grace through Christ, through faith, to make us a new creation so we do good things for him. Jesus said uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. They don't praise you. They give praise to God. Good deeds validate our faith. And so it shows in the good things we do. And that's why James says, you know, if someone comes to you and says, hey, I've got a problem. You know, I, I just don't have enough food to feed my family. Or, you know, I don't have clothes. They're just wearing out. And you go, you know, I'm going to pray for you. God bless you. He's going to work it out for you. Just trust him. God says, what a hypocrite. You have, you have stuff you could give that person. You have a refrigerator that's full. You have a pantry that's full. You have the means to help this person, and you didn't? That's not a person of faith. Because even if you think, well, then I'm going to run out, where's your faith in that God's providing for you? Act in faith, because God, God has, has set you up to be a blessing to others. It's not about faith without works 
or faith plus works. It's about faith that works. That works. So God is working in our lives, and he's, he's teaching us to live out our faith, show it, give evidence of it. The second thing he says about faith is that faith that is only agreement is useless. James writes, but if someone says, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? See, faith that is only agreement is useless. He's not saying that believing by itself is bad, but if it doesn't evidence in works, it's not. When John the Baptist was preaching his message of repentance, he told people, you know, the kingdom has come. Repent and believe the good news. And he says, here's how I want you to show your faith. Come right down in this water where I am and be baptized as a sign that you're leaving the Egypt of your old life and you're ready to cross through the Red Sea, in a sense, to enter into this new way of living, walking with God. Are you ready to do that? See, so many of us like to stay back, even at church. We never go forward at church. We stay back and say, I've got it up here. It's in my head. And God says, you've got to step out, buddy. You've got to step out of the crowd and say, no, I'm believing. I'm, I'm responding to this. God wants us to show that we have faith. Believing by itself is not the same as faith or trust. Do you know why I know that? James says even the demons believe. And what do they do? They shudder. See, th- this, is, this is the scary news. Your faith could be on the level of the demons. You could have a demon-like faith. See, if, if Gallup were existing in the time of Jesus and went around and says, let's survey the demons and see how many of them believe in God, I'll tell you this, it would be 100%. 100%. Every single one of them knows who Jesus is. In fact, if you read through Mark's gospel, for example, one time Jesus is in the synagogue preaching. And a man walks in and he's demon-possessed. And this demon begins to speak, and he says to Jesus, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That's a demon speaking. Then you flip a few chapters later in Mark's gospel, and the demons are calling Jesus the Son of God and the Son of the Most High God. They know precisely who Jesus is. And you know what they do? They shudder. They don't surrender. They don't submit. They just want Jesus to leave them alone. And many people who believe and don't live out a life of faith are on the same level. Jesus, I believe in you. Just don't mess with my life. Just don't mess with my life. Don't mess with my marriage. Don't mess with my job. Don't mess with my addictions. Don't mess with my money. Stay out of it. But I believe in you. I believe you exist. I believe that you're there. So many of us, and I was in this category, I would have marked when I was young, I believe in God. I really did. I, I've always believed that, that Jesus came to this earth. He lived as a, a perfect man. He died on the cross, rose from the dead. I've always believed that my entire life. Never, ever doubted it. But I'll tell you this. In those early years, I wasn't surrendered to Jesus. Reminds me of a time when um, I had a roommate when I was a young adult. I lived in Arizona, and my roommate was not athletic at all. But he went to a gym, and he started playing racquetball and invited me to come down and play with him. And I thought, I played tennis. I played tennis in high school a little bit, and I played ping pong. I know how to use a paddle and a racket. He says, I'm going to smoke this guy. So uh, I thought, sure enough, it's just hitting a ball against the wall. I can do that. Well, it's, it's a little harder than that. If you play racquetball, there's, there's angles and things, and this guy knew the angles. And all of a sudden, I, I was getting all twisted up. 
Like he hit the ball and it's going over there and I'm trying to hit it and I can't hit it. He, he scores the first point and then the second point. Pretty soon it's five nothing, then it's 10 nothing. He skunks me 21 nothing. And we go in the locker room, and here's this guy who's not athletic at all, and here I played sports and stuff in high school and some in college, and he says, hey, sorry to be so tough on you on your first time. And I thought, you jerk. <laughs> I, I, was gonna, I had rehearsed last night how I was going to apologize to you for beating you on my first day playing a racquetball, and I was so humiliated because I thought I was good, and I wasn't. And I think there's a lot of us who think we're believers, and God says, no, you're not. You are on the level of the demons. In fact, they have a clearer theology than you do. You have not surrendered to me. See, faith can be demon-like or it can be demonstrated. <laughs> That's what we want, to be demonstrated, that a faith is moving within me. It's causing me to act. It's, it's what God wants to stir within me. And belief is part of that. Honestly, belief is truly part of that. It begins with recognition. You have to believe certain things. Jesus died on the cross for your sins, rose from the dead, that God made you, and all these things. Those are part of faith. It's a foundation of faith, but that's not the end of faith. It should lead you to the next place of, of the surrender of the will. The surrender saying, because I believe that, I'm going to act on it. I'm going to act on it. Faith must move us to action. And that's why this kind of faith, a faith that truly acts, is so rare. I actually think if Gallup would do a different, ask a different question on the survey, instead of saying, do you believe in God, ask, do you trust God on a daily basis? Are there specific areas in your life where you're trusting God? Uh, the number would drop from 80 to what, what do you, would you think? 10%? 8%? I mean, look around you, and, and what percentage of people actually live a life of devotion and sacrifice for the Lord? That they're all about his kingdom come, not their kingdom. The number really shrinks down. That's why this is so rare. That's why true faith, faith that is displayed is priceless. It's priceless. And that's why when Jesus was ministering, he had a guy come to him once. Actually, a guy actually sent an entourage to Jesus. He was a Roman soldier. He had a sick servant on the verge of dying. He sent a group to see Jesus, to ask Jesus if he would heal his servant. He had so much faith that he didn't have to go personally. He could actually send people to Jesus and just tell Jesus, say the word and my servant will be healed. And so when they got to Jesus and said, yeah, this guy, he just says, he knows what it's like to be under authority. He's a man. He knows the structure. He knows that when you're when you, when you have authority, you tell one person to go here and one person to go there, and they obey. And, and he knows, Jesus, you have all authority. And he believes if you just speak the word, the servant will be healed. And Jesus says, oh, my goodness, I have not seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. The scripture actually says Jesus marveled at his faith, marveled at it. This guy didn't grow up in the synagogue, didn't grow up with the scriptures like all these Jews did. This guy just knew. He saw Jesus at work and said, that guy's something special. I can trust him. And Jesus healed his servant. And so what James does is he picks two characters out of biblical history. The first one's Abraham. and shows how their faith was displayed. He says, um, he says regarding Abraham, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Wasn't that Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? What he's saying is, wasn't his faith like validated 
when he did this? Didn't he show that he was a person of faith by what he did when he offered his son up on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. See, we, sometimes we'll emphasize it's just faith alone, but, but James is saying, yes, but the faith alone is not alone. It produces good works. It evidences itself in actually steps of faith, of ways that you're trusting him. So here's what Abraham did. He and his wife were way up in age. You know, they were like 100 years old, and, and they're told they're going to have a child. This child's going to be the source of blessings to all the nations. His family's going to be massive. His descendants just as numerous as stars in the sky. And so they have this little, little boy, precious little boy named Isaac. He, they, you can just picture them loving on little Isaac. I mean, he's a child of promise. He's a child they've always longed for. He gets to be a a, a young man. Maybe he's eight or 10 years old. We don't know how old he is. But then God says, hey, uh, I want you to sacrifice him. And how gut-wrenching they had to be for Abraham. And yet, in obedience, he went up on the mountain, took the wood with his his son Isaac, laid Isaac on on the altar, was ready to sacrifice when an angel intervened and said, stop, you've shown God that you're faithful. And God provided a ram in the thicket that became the sacrifice that he offered. And if you look in the book of Hebrews, here's the the interesting thing. Abraham, it says, believed that God was able to raise the dead. That even if God told him to sacrifice his son, then God must be ready to raise him from the dead because God is faithful to his promise. That's faith. And so James says, there's an example of faith. You want another example? How about Rahab? Rahab. You don't know Rahab? Rahab was a prostitute that lived in Jericho, and when the the Israelites were ready to go into the promised land, the first city they were coming to was Jericho. That's when they marched around and blew the horns and walls came down. But before then, they're they're on a reconnaissance mission. Two spies go into town, and word gets out to the king that there's Jewish spies in their city. So they got to find them to kill them. But Rahab, who's a prostitute, has sympathy. She knows something about this God of those people, and she protects those two Um, spies, and she allows them to escape secretly. So here's what James says, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Faith in action. And what's so amazing in in these two stories is that you have the epitome of faith in Abraham, and then you have a woman over here who's anything like Abraham. I mean, she's not even Jewish. She's a prostitute. Abraham's a man of faith. And yet this woman does something that James says, it's on par with what Abraham did. She exhibited her faith by her action, just like Abraham. You know what? I think everyone in this room falls somewhere between Abraham and Rahab on that scale, somewhere in there. And on your, on your notes, there's a line for you to put your name. Because my question for you is, so if the story is going to be told by your kids and grandkids, what will be their story of your faith? What would they write? What would they say about you and your relationship with the Lord? What does faith look like? You say you have faith, display that faith. It's got to be more than just saying you believe. It's got to be more than just going to church. It's got to be more than just some rituals. It has to go much deeper than that. You know, uh, I have right here, anybody hungry? Yes. 
yeah. Hershey's. Hershey's. Who doesn't like Hershey's? But you know, you think this is a candy bar, but it's not, because I took the candy bar out, and it's just cardboard inside. Oh, yes. Disappointed you, right? Cardboard. You have been bamboozled. Just like... Just... Did you hear that? Ushers? Guy in the orange? You know, sometimes we look at someone and go, we look around this room. Oh, this is a bunch of Christians. If you look inside the package, you look inside the heart as God does, he says, no. 25% of them are. There's a bunch of them that never given an offering ever. There's a bunch of them that never served. There's a bunch of them that never crack open their Bible. There's a bunch of them that truly, they like to sing, but they aren't really worshiping. And God knows the heart. And, and here's my burden. Because I was there growing up in a church where I believed God, and I thought I was a Christian, and I wasn't. And some of you are fooled. You're like a shell of a Christian, but you're not really because you've never surrendered. It's like the demonic faith where you acknowledge what's true, but you've never actually gone forward. You've never surrendered. You've never stepped out. You're, you're playing it safe. You're, you're, you're guarding yourself. You want to go to heaven? Who doesn't? But God wants you to be part of his family and join the family business. Build his kingdom. You know, back um, in the mid-1800s, there was a, an acrobat came over from France. His stage name was Blondin. Now, Blondin was a, was a short man, very good tightrope walker. And he set up a rope across Niagara Falls from the American side to the Canadian side. And this is very daring to do this. They, they put this rope across and, and had some guy wires that helped stabilize it. But he walked across that rope and went from one side to the other. And the people were just amazed at what he did, but it didn't end there. He, he did this many, many times. In fact, the next time he did it, he walked across carrying a camera. This wasn't like an Instamatic pocket camera. It was one of those cameras that was on a stand, like on a tripod. He actually stopped midway through, turned around, put that camera on the rope, and took a picture of the crowd. There was a time when he walked across uh, that rope backwards. Another time he ro- walked across it back and forth with a bag over his head. Another time, I can't believe this, but he did somersaults on the rope. Amazing. I mean, people thought he was reckless, foolish, but he was a very talented man. But the one that that shocked me the most was one day he walked across this rope and he got all the way across to the Canadian side and then he disappeared for about 20 minutes. And when he reappeared, there was a man on his back. It was his manager What had happened was when he got to the other side, he told his manager, get on. Now, I want to tell you this. I'll bet that manager had seen him walk across this rope dozens of times and says, do you believe, his name was Harry Colcord. Harry, do you believe that Blondin can walk across this rope? Absolutely, I believe it. Oh, yeah, he can do it. I I trust he can do that. He says, okay, do you trust him enough to get on his back? Hmm. So here's what Blondin did. Blondin said, you've seen me do this, get on my back. We're going back over. He got on his back, and then, this is what Blondin wrote in his autobiography about that experience. He, he, he leaned back and said, you are no longer Colcord. That's his last name. You are Blondin. Until I clear this place, be a part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. If you do, we will both go to our death. 
You and I have to be so in sync with each other. You have to cling so tight to me that if I move, you move with me. Don't go off on your own. Don't try to do something to prove yourself. Just stay with me. We have to be like this to get across or we're both going down. And you know what happened as they walked across that rope? Two of the guy wires snapped. That'd shake you up, wouldn't it? But I'll tell you this, he got to the other side. He got to the other side. And that's a picture of Harry on Blondin's back. Jesus came to earth to grab a hold of you and me. He says, get on my back. I'm going to take you on a walk. Eventually, we're going to get to heaven. But between here and there, it's going to be a walk of faith. You've got to trust me. You've got to lean into me. You've got to cling close to me as if your life depends on it. And if you do that, and if you listen to my voice and do what I tell you, you'll get to the other side with me.